0: Welcome to Science Stories. This is our first episode, and I would like to start by thanking KCSM for giving me the opportunity to make this show. I also would like to thank Irene Undermatcher, that she's the person that designed the logo. And I would also like to thank Clementina Galvo for helping me think and produce this show. I guess I should introduce myself. My name is Mateo Garcia. But today we have such a great guest that I honestly don't want to lose much time on that. So... Without further ado, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce my, my guest today. We have Dr. Shuttle. He's he's a well known scientist for his work in genomics, in the genus of Cyphophorus. There's a, a little freshwater fish that he'll he'll tell us more about that. And just a little bit of background on Dr. Shuttle. He studied biology and chemistry in the University of Gießen in Germany, where he got his, his doctoral degree in genetics, then in in Afterwards, he, was, he became a team leader of the Max Plant Institute in Munich, in Germany. And after that, he became a professor at the Biocenter of the University of Würzburg, also in Germany. Recently, though, he had a short passage at A&M. And now he has a position at the Syphophorus Genetic Stock Center here in San Marcos. So that's why we're lucky to have him on the show today. Welcome, Dr. Shuttle. How are you feeling?
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Thank you for being here. So Dr. Shuttle, you're 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 known as an like I don't want to be I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but you're kind of an eminence in the genus siphonophores in, in the siphonophores world. Can you tell us what siphonophore means, please?
1: Cyphophorus is in fact a, a Greek name and it means "sword carrier." And these fish, they live in uh, the Atlantic drainages uh, of Mexico. There are many species and they are known to all fish hobbyists. In many pet shops you will find ornamental forms of these cyphophoros and as the name says they are known as the swordtails because males have an extension of the lower part of the caudal fin which looks like a sword and they use these sword in their attempts to convince females when they court. It's a very interesting developmental thing, kind of an ornament, like the peacock's
0: tail. So these fish are really, I guess they're pretty. They're pretty fish to look at, right?
1: Yes, the the wild forms are pretty, but uh, the ornamental fish breeders, they made them even prettier by selection and also by crossing even different species, which is an uh, interesting aspect of these Canus Xiphophorus because you can hybridize almost all of them.
0: And I guess that's why you study them?
1: That's why some people study them. They are interested in understanding how hybrids perform in nature. Hybridization is a big issue when you talk about the evolution of species. But I became interested into these fish already when I started to do my research as an undergrad. These fish are well known since almost one hundred years as models for cancer research. In, In fact, these fish have are one of the oldest maybe not the oldest animal model for cancer research.
0: Cancer research in general or or a specific type of cancer It's
1: a specific type of cancer it's a type of skin cancer which is known me- which is known as melanoma which is uh, one of the most deadliest skin cancer in in humans and it's the sixth most Cancer, uh, it's the sixth most frequent cancer in in the world. And so, how
0: how studying cancer in a fish species is re- is relevant for, or, or or I guess you're trying. I guess you're not trying to find a cure. You're trying to understand the mechanisms.
1: Right. So, we use these fish to under to to understand the underlying principles the changes which happen when a normal cell becomes a cancer cell and these are very basic biological (coughs) processes which are not different between a fish a fly a mouse or a human
0: So so potentially a discovery on on how cancer operates on fish could relate somehow to how cancer operates on humans? Yes.
1: uh, Mice, fish, flies, they have been models to understand human biology, human physiology and human disease since many decades and they have proven to be very useful tools. Uh, the uh, The books of science history are full of such examples where studying an animal can lead to very important uh, insights about humans. These fish develop melanoma under a very special system, and as I said, they they have been in science since now (coughs) almost 100 years. They contributed to the understanding that cancer is not something that falls from the outside on an organism. For a long time, people have thought that cancer could be an infection, like c- uh, COVID. But it were those animal models which showed that cancer has a genetic basis. And this is obvious if you still think of a, of a cancer cell in a human. Every cancer cell produces another cancer cell the feature of being a cancer cell is inherited from the progenitors. And we also know that, of course, cancer is, uh, in, in a lot of cases, triggered by inventra- environmental pollutants or by some uh, bad ray- rays or in, uh, irradiation. And but it, it needs a certain substrate in the genes of the organism to develop. And this is what, what animals can teach us. What are these substrates?
0: So if you have to say a percentage of the cancers that come from environmental reasons and genetic basis of cancers, which, which one would you say is more predominant?
1: <coughs> so there is uh, a small group of cancers which are just developing on the basis of the genetics. These are these heritable cancers like uh, retin- retinoplastomas. A lot of the cancers which develop in in small t- in young children come from the, the genetics because these young people have not ex- been exposed long enough to any environmental or other young substances that could elicit the cancer. And then there is a much larger part where we know that uh, kind of unhealthy life conditions where pollutants are the trigger, but we all know, we all have this uncle in our family who is almost 80 years old, of wonderful health, and he has been smoking cigars all his life and drinking and uh, had a, a, a very baroque life, and he is super healthy. And then in the same, in another family, there might be a young guy, not 30 years old, developing a deadly melanoma. And they live in the same world, in the same environment, and it tells us that there is something in the genetics of the persons which makes you susceptible or not. and. This basic genetic outfit is the heritage that we get from our parents, grandparents, and so on. If you are lucky, you, are, you have a good condition, and you are resistant, and if you're unlucky, you're not. And we are, are somehow more and more understanding what these genetic factors and components are which makes you more susceptible or not and you might bring in risk factors. And these risk factors can be monitored. So if, for instance, we know there is a gene which is predisposing to breast cancer, it doesn't mean that you get breast cancer, but the chance to develop a breast cancer is higher if you have this r- variant of the gene than for others. If we know that, of course, such a person can be monitored uh, in shorter, uh, at a higher frequency, so that's, that's good to know. It will not, you will not be able to prevent cancer from this knowledge, but you can take measures for a better diagnosis.
0: Mm-hmm. Dr. Schertl, cancer is one of your, of your main research areas, but if somebody did a, a Google search on, on, on Dr. Schertl's publications, one of, of your most cited work relates to fish genome duplications. Could you, could you please tell us uh, what happened in fish? So, I, g- I guess first we should clarify what a genome is and why is it important to know the genome of a species, if you, if you mind?
1: Yeah, so, <coughs> the genome you could define as the blueprint of an organism. This is a molecule which is called deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, Yeah, the in famous short, DNA. Which contains all the information that is needed to make this organism and to maintain it as a living organism. So about the development of the cells, of the body shape, the organs and also the physiology so that the liver functions as a liver and the brain as a brain. All this is laid down in your genes. These are pieces which have the information for certain molecules, which are responsible for these processes. And so, the basically, is it's is like is the
0: instructions for all the functioning of an organism yes. are contained in the genome of a yep. species. And, of course, that's, that's super valuable to, to understand and know. What happened in, in fish, that is genome duplication? Yeah.
1: Sometimes, when organisms reproduce, there is a mistake. Usually, any offspring from an organism should somehow be very similar with with a parent. And this means that the blueprint, the genome, should be more or less the same. As every offspring has a mother and a father, usually half of the genome of the mother and half of the genome of the father is split out so that you have one half from your father, one half from your mother, and then you are like they were a full organism (coughs) which has two sets of genomes. If this process goes wrong, you don't have the maternal and the paternal genome, but you have two copies of each. So at at the end you have four sets of chromosomes. This is a mistake and in a lot of cases these mistakes are failure and the organism doesn't develop. (coughs) But we have learned that during evolution these mistakes happen and they are kept for some time because it turned out that under certain conditions such a duplication, which, in the first place, is a genomic shock to the to the organism, can be of advantage, and fish have taken this special advantage. We know that early on in our history of the vertebrate animals, there have been one or two of these um, genome duplications, and then in the fish lineage. Another one happened.
0: I guess when you have extra copies of the genes, you have redundant copies of the genes. Mm -hmm. Those, what's what's the destiny of those? Are they all functional or?
1: Yes, in the beginning everything is functional. You just have twice the amount of. But isn't
0: that a? Couldn't that be a problem?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it's the first place. If you think about it, it's not economic because. You have yeah, it's one less, less efficient, basically. Yeah, yeah. You have one set of genes, which is already enough, and then you have this duplicated, which in fact is, is a kind of yeah, not, not needed. But <coughs> every cell, before the cell can divide, has to produce to, to double the genome because you need it for the two daughter cells. So this needs a, not a lot of energy, more time. And it's all almost dispensable. So what happens during evolution that an orig- a lineage which underwent such a genome duplication tries to get rid of these uh,
0: redundant gene copies? H- how how would you get rid of the genu- redundant gene copies?
1: So s- so cell nucleus has um, many features how to get rid. So they are first they are acquiring small changes, so they do not become functional anymore, and then (coughs) they are turned in what we call junk, meaningless DNA, Mm -hmm. and then by time these pieces of junk and meaningless DNA got lost because evolution is not interested in keeping them. But this is only one side of the coin because, you say, fish underwent such a, whole genome duplication and uh, was it just a bad thing for them? No, fish are have evolved a wonderful variety and complexity and of the 40,000 vertebrate species more than 25,000 are fish. They have uh, evolved wonderful complexities and this is because of the genome duplication because you can imagine that the duplicate can get lost, or because it is not needed for the main original function, it can acquire a new function.
0: So since it's it's not being used for its specific function, I guess it has the freedom to turn into something, into a different kind of gene (laughs) that could potentially provide an advantage for the fish. But couldn't also, or aren't most mutations deleterious or, or negative in some way?
1: Uh, A lot of the mutations are deleterious, and this will lead to the degradation or the disruption of the gene. But in a few cases, these mutations are beneficial, and then the evolutionary forces will try to keep it. So we know that in fish, on average, about more than 80% of the genes which were duplicated lost their partner.
0: How how many genes are there in a genome? Would you say, in average,
1: about between twenty and thirty thousand?
0: And uh, and fish have double that, or
1: no? They have a little a little more. Like I would say, fifteen percent more. These are these mm. remnants from the duplication. But uh, for instance, if you think about, we we studied that and we found that the genes which are responsible for body pigmentation, thirty percent of them are retained in duplicates, meaning or explaining why we have such wonderful colorful fish that you all may know from the zoo or from the aquarium.
0: Dr. shuttle I don't want to turn this into a, a tribute show because I, I know this will make you a little uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but you also have done plenty of work on sex determination mechanism. This is a, a really complex theme, so probably a little too complex to try to, to explain it thoroughly here to today but if you could please enlighten us a little bit of what is it that you study about sex determination?
1: Sex is one of the oldest phenomena in biology and in biology we understand uh, and under this topic the existence of a species as a male and a female and uh, what does it mean it's certainly a process, which makes two individuals which originally have the same set of genes for making the organism different. Every embryo, and if we talk about mammals, fish, man, every embryo develops from an egg. The egg starts to divide and makes an early embryo, but this early embryo is neither male nor female only very late during development a certain group of cells deep inside the embryo will either develop in a testis, and this will be a male, or into an ovary, and this will be a female. And the trigger which tells these cells become male or female can either come from the genome, from genes, or it can come from the environment. For instance, in turtles and uh, crocodiles, the incubation temperature of the egg determines if these eggs will be male alligators or female alligators. It's just the the breeding temperature.
0: So it's 100% environmental, dependent on the temperature.
1: True environmental sex determination. For a lot of other animals, and and, uh, this is true for many fish and for all mammals, it's a genome which determines (laughs) if you become a male or a female. And this is true to a certain chromosome in the set of chromosomes which make up the genome. And there is, in mammals, there is a chromosome which, if you have inherited it, it tells the cells become male so we have a male determining chromosome if this chromosome is not there you will be a female
0: so this is the famous x and y right
1: right so females have two x chromosomes and males have this male determining y chromosome and which makes you xy and then you are male but that's not the whole whole story for instance in birds it's the, it's the other way around in birds there is a chromosome which tells do not become male Meaning become a female, and this chromosome then is called the w chromosome, so all birds females are have the w chromosome and they are of the chromosomal constitution w c and all males are CC. I,
0: th- I think this is something that might surprise a lot of a lot of people that there's not just an x and a y chromosome that is also a w and a c yeah and it goes even
1: further there are uh, species which are have x zero sex determination then there are others which have uh, many sex chromosomes or the the famous platypus which is a very uh, ancient mammal from australia has 10x chromosomes in the female and five X and five Y chromosomes in a male. So there is a huge variety.
0: And this means, so if you say that in order to have um to become a a male, you need the Y chromosome, Mm -hmm. right? And therefore male individuals have a copy of the X and the Y. This means that it's the male who determines whether the offspring are male or female.
1: Exactly. That's, that's... And that's
0: not the case in...?
1: In birds, it's the other way around. There, the hen determines if uh, the egg will develop as a, as a male or a female. Yeah.
0: That's, that's super interesting. Is it the whole chromosome that determines... Is, do you need the whole chromosome, or is it no, a...? No.
1: No, it's... In, in, in general, it's just one single gene which is making this decision but uh, due to very complicated evolutionary forces, a chromosome which has this one single gene which tells the body, male or female, keeps only this important gene. This chromosome is somehow specialized on sex determination and most other genes on this chromosome uh, disappear over the million of years of evolution.
0: Mm -hmm. It's always the sex ratio one-to-one?
1: The sex ratio in a lot of cases is one-to-one. We think that this is what's called an evolutionary stable strategy because it's good to have equal uh, levels of males and females. It's not hundred percent true if you look in the details. For instance, in in humans we know that we are always over, if you take really large numbers, large populations and large time frames, there are always a little more male boys than girls which are born. And there are, (coughs) of course, uh, explanations for this. People have uh, proposed that this is due to the case that Males go out, had to go out in the forest and hunt, and they could be uh, attacked by, by raptors. Males so they go are b- out in the war, so there is uh, a higher risk of mm-hmm. being a male than the number of
0: males. More males are born, but also more l- males die. Okay, and that keeps yeah, one to one. one. <laughs> but I guess then. Um, there is a sli- is there a slight increase in the probability of the sperm that carries the male allele to fertilize the egg instead of the X
1: allele? Of course, uh, one can make the calculation that the Y chromosome, at the end, carries only the male determining gene and it shrinks. So a sperm cell which carries a Y chromosome has a l- less DNA to carry than a sperm cell which carries an X chromosome. The X chromosome is, is up to 5 times or 10 times larger. S- and, and you can really measure this difference, this weight difference with very uh, subtle uh, yeah, methods. So there were people that would say that a Y carrying sperm would be faster. Lighter, because be it's lighter? Sli- because it's lighter and could come up to the egg And uh, maybe that would be the explanation why there are a few more males and females, because the chance of the white sperm is higher to reach the egg.
0: Dr. Shagdal, I think there's a, a nice case study that, that touches several of your interests. That, that is the case of the Amazon molly. You published the genome of the Amazon molly, and you described its genome as a celibate genome why would you say it's a, a celibate genome
1: so celibate comes originally comes from the latin and in the original meaning of celibate is being alone or living alone and so then it, d- it has been turned into the, the meaning of unmarried so how can a genome be unmarried usually we talked about that if an organism a new baby is is born and when it starts on an egg, there has to be a contribution from the mother and a contribution from the father. And this is made possible because only half of the chromosomes from the father and half of the chromosomes from the mother are in the egg and the sperm. They come together and they make then a new organism which has two parents. But if we look around in nature, we find species where an, a kid has only one parent. S- we call them s- unisexual. So these are, for instance, this fish, the Amazon molly, is an all-female species. They're only females, and they produce only females, and the species itself has no males. And this happens beca- can happen because when the egg is produced, the chromosomes are not... Uh, divided so both sets remain and then it goes on and goes on. This is called Parthenogenesis.
0: Are they called Amazons because they're all females?
1: Yes, they are called Amazons. It's not because we find them in the Amazon River. It's called, they are called Amazons. Amazons are this from the Greek mythology this tribe of fierce all-female fighters who killed all the ma- That's what the mythology says, they killed all male b- babies, so the boys, and uh, how did they reproduce? They did it by raping males from other tribes when they found them in, in the forest. Then. So that's, that's a mythology. So how is the Amazon model doing it? The Amazon molly is in fact a little bit like the Amazons because to start the development of this embryo they need sperm from males of other species. So what they do is they go out, they watch out for these males when the males court with their own females, they sometimes swim in between, and. They capture the sperm. We call it kleptospermy because they steal the sperm of another species to get their de- development going on. But in fact, these fish are true clones, so they are so genetically identical.
0: The only use of the males in this species is to trigger mm. reproduction, Absolutely. but they don't have any part in it. Yeah, there's nothing. It in n- it. So it's even. So they even steal the sperm. They didn't even they don't even contribute the sperm. Right. They, the yeah. sperm is stolen from them, mm-hmm. and the
1: sperm is stolen, and the 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 genetic uh, information which is in the sperm is degraded in the Amazon molly egg. So there is a very uh, aggressive mach- machinery which which s- makes the DNA of the father into small pieces, and then it's extruded. It's interesting that. There are not many unisexual mm-hmm. vertebrates. Yeah, there are a few fish, uh, some amphibians, and also reptiles. But in none of these cases, they really yeah, got rid of needing somehow a male. Yeah. There is, there are lizards which don't live uh, very far from here in the Tucson in the area. That's an all-female lizard. They do parthenogenesis, and in that case, they don't even use males from other species. But they need another female to sit on them and to do trigger a her. pseudo-copulation behavior, so that at least the brain knows start reproduction. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Amazon mollies—they they live in northern Mexico, and they go up to the Rio Grande it, in their natural um, uh, area. but also here in San Marcos we have them. One fisherman who was fishing in the San Marco in, in the Rio Grande brought them back as bait fish and released them in the San Marcos River. And if you go to the Aquarena spring parks to the, the Meadows Center, You can watch these Amazon mollies in the water, and you can also watch them stealing sperm from their host species, which is the sailfin molly.
0: Dr. Charles, I'm going to move on into a bigger fish now that I know you've worked with, and also circling a little bit back to the genomics and to the genome analysis stuff. I understand that, that you recently did the sturgeon genome. Was this a request from someone, or why why did you work with the sturgeon genome?
1: Originally, my interest in sturgeon is related to what we talked about some time ago about uh, genome duplications. As as I try to explain, in, in the fish which we have, which the, most of the fish that we know, they got rid of these duplicate genes and only retained a small amount, which they use for for make it be more more complex. The so sturgeons are different. The so sturgeons also underwent uh, independent genome duplication. We know now that it was 200 million years ago, but they somehow did not have the machinery or the evolved so slowly. They were too lazy to get rid of this duplicated material. So they do and
0: have a larger number of genes. So,
1: so they have a larger number. They have a, uh, almost double the amount of genes as, as we have it. But, of course, this is all redundant. Huh? So for us molecular biologists and genome uh, specialist such a genome is a, a big challenge because you have everything twice and you don't know to which part it belongs there might be small differences and <coughs> it was interesting for us to see if we can do it so it was like a
0: personal challenge personal
1: or challenge but if you want to, to sequence a genome you need money and you need res- research money and you have to find it somewhere and luckily, sturgeons are very important economic species. So there was enough interest by the funding agencies to give money to sequence the, the sturgeon genome because of its high economical importance.
0: Because they produce right. caviar, right?
1: They produce the caviar. Caviar is a high-value product. A lot of the sturgeons are now in East Europe and Asia in aquaculture because the demand is so high that just collecting them from the river is not enough. Sturgeon farming has a big complication because the sturgeons, as I said, they are slow growers. They have a long generation time.
0: They're they're huge, right? And they are huge, yeah. They get to two, two, three meters?
1: They get up to two to three meters, some, some even larger. And Even for the smaller species, it takes about 7 to 10, and for the larger species, 10 to 15 years until they have developed the the age of being able to produce caviar. Caviar are the eggs of the female. Mm -hmm. So it means only the females are useful for the sturgeon culture. So basically, you're
0: you're raising for 10 years a 2-meter fish, To basically kill it afterwards and throw it away
1: yeah that's and that's a big problem it needs a lot of food maintenance space and uh, sturgeon meat is not uh, very tasty no one wants to eat it. it has an oily taste and I think even for animal food production it's it's not useful so it would be very interesting if one could determine at a very early stage when the, <coughs> when the baby sturgeons are, let's say, about two to three centimeters, to know if this baby sturgeon, after 10 years, will become a male or a female. And as I said, the information is in, in the, the genome.
0: D- you need to find that gene that determines exactly. whether it's going to be a male or a female. And then you developed a test.
1: We have developed the test, but this needed also not only understanding the genome, we had to do what we, what we call uh, to produce a genetic map to find the chromosome which is determining the sex of these fish, and to make such genetic maps, you need to produce a genetic family of many individuals, and then you have to take the a DNA sample from each of the offspring, study its genetics, and then from this you make a
0: map. So just out of curiosity, more or less, how much would it cost to make yeah, a, is, in a genome? in
1: our case, uh, as, as we needed sturgeon, mm-hmm. and we needed uh, from a big species, from one female, the p- production of egg, which is about 2 to 3 kilos, Yeah, so we had to buy Caviar, two to three kilo caviar from a from a farm producer, and this was about forty thousand dollars, which we paid from our grant, and we didn't get even one spoonful of the caviar for you our you lab. D- you part. spent
0: forty k in caviar, and you you couldn't try yeah. not even yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Oh man.
1: And it's interesting; no one at the administration of the of the research uh, council complained when we presented them a $40,000 bill for caviar from pet taxpayers. Money. Nobody
0: suspected anything anything crazy going on. So, Dr. Charles, I see that you worked with so many organisms and, and from so many regions of the world. So I, I guess you've traveled most of the earth or, or you've been around a lot, right?
1: Yeah, I've been around a lot. I, I did not go to all the places. In a lot of cases, we get uh, the material from colleagues who work in this area. I was involved in the genome of an ice fish, which lives in an Arktagar in the cold waters. Uh, but I don't like uh, the cold, <laughs> my friend.
0: So I guess so you must have many crazy stories from when you were sampling around the world, going to remote places or having encounters with...
1: Oh, yeah, they are. So, when we, for instance, go to Mexico, we don't go to Acapulco or Yucatán. We go to the rainforest. And it's very interesting. These people which live in the rainforest, some of them are (coughs) extremely shy. The Lacandones, when we drive with our car to the river, we see them in the jungle and they look at us. And when we turn around, they really... Go back and uh, and hide. And once it was like uh, we were approaching a, a lake down in Chiapas, and while we were coming, and of course we are making a lot of noise, we saw that there was a woman at the at the border of the lake washing, doing the laundry, and w- when she saw us coming, she made a,
0: a whistle, a whistle,
1: yeah, and then we saw that three to four b- of her kids which we didn't see before they suddenly were running up to a tree and were climbing and hiding up on the tree just <laughs> when they saw us foreigners coming so these people live uh, yeah very <laughs>
0: back and have you ever had a dangerous situation or, or scary situation in your all your sampling around the world sometimes
1: we saw an alligator not so far, or <coughs> I'm very much afraid of water snakes. Yeah, It once happened that this was, n- what we thought, not a very dangerous area. It was a kind of a, um, agricultural area where there was a little river going to a ranch. And <coughs> coming from Europe, uh, we didn't sink too much. We just crawled under the fence and went to this little river.
0: Wh- where is this?
1: Uh, this was in, in near Tabasco. It just took out our fishing gear, and then I saw, t- oh, someone is standing behind you, and you, you know mm-hmm. this feeling. Yeah. And I turned around, and then I saw the farmer and the rifle, and he said, uh, in, in Spanish, what are you doing? And He was really angry, and uh, already here was hearing the dogs coming. But then we explained to him, we are scientists coming from Germany, we are studying the biology of these little fish. and. He started to, uh, to understand, so it needed some some Spanish. And what we always do is uh, try to show where we are. So we wear T-shirts from the famous soccer clubs in in in, in Germany, and then uh, very <laughs> nice and uncomplicated within a, in a few time. And later on, he invited us even to come to his ranch house, and we had coffee with him, and it
0: was football <laughs> nice. you but went from rifle I can to tell
1: you when you turn and you look into a rifle it's not <laughs> a very pleasant feeling
0: and Dr. Scherl what about foods and, and I mean I guess you, you've interacted with so many cultures have you tried or have you and, and you've been invited to so many dinners around the world and, and stuff like this
1: that's one of the nice things about our professions very often as a scientist you do kind of a not a conference tour, but just giving presentations at several places in the country. You, you tour through the country, and then you are, all of course, an honorable guest, and then you are invited, and very often these are wonderful dinners, and, and I've enjoyed that a lot. Sometimes it may happen that there is something on the table where you are not sure first what it is, and if you learn what it is, if you want to eat it. But if you are the guest, yeah, you cannot say no.
0: Like like what, for example? Have you had to eat any ants in Mexico or?
1: No, I have not uh, eaten had not eaten ants. But uh, you know, the most uh, s- the most strange things happen in Asia. I remember once it was in, in China. And you have to know that I have. A phobia of snakes. Mm-hmm. So, and when we go to the river, it's my first thing. Just watch if there's a snake, and if I, if I see one, I have nightmare dreams the next night. So this was a it was a a meeting. I was giving my lecture, and then afterwards we went out <coughs> for dinner in in one of these big round table, and all the honorary members of the university, the professors, were there. Then they said. Tonight we will have a very special dinner which brings luck to you and luck to all of us. And uh, it's called The Treasures of the Emperor. And they explained me that this, it was kind of a big hot pot. It looked like a soup with vegetables and um, white meat in it. And they explained me that this is the dish which is dedicated to the Chinese emperor and the empress. And it has the signature animals. So, the signature animal of the emperors in historic times is the pheasant. Okay, that's they didn't have pheasants everywhere, so they just took the chicken, which mm-hmm. was good enough. Yeah. And then it comes to the emperor. And the signature animal of the Chinese emperor is the dragon. How do you get a dragon for yeah. cooking? So what they took is the next uh, relative of the of the dragon, and this is a snake. So they made this <laughs> hot pot of snake and chicken, and of course I had to eat it. I know how a piece of chicken meat looks. You know it from the bones. Also the the snake was visible by <laughs> by the spine and by what? the ribs of the snake. But
0: what did I it taste like hmm? what did it taste like
1: like every always tastes like, like chicken, chicken i guess that yeah l- everyone says everything like alligator takes t- tastes like chicken or so snake tastes like chicken and in fact the meat was not bad it's 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 i, I guess it was has a very nice texture and so on
0: were you scared or, or did you mind? enjoy to eat your enemy
1: no no i w- I, w- I i had a bad feeling and i i i think i still sometimes dream that uh horrors, it didn't help me.
0: And Dr. Shuttle, I I know you received a lot of awards and recognitions around the world, and would you say that the the award that the Prince Hitachi Prize was one of the most prestigious ones that you got?
1: Yes, for for me as a (coughs) biologist, this Prince Hitachi Prize meant a lot. Prince Hitachi was the brother of the former Japanese Emperor, the Tenno Akihito, and the Japanese Emperor family, all of them are biologists. (coughs) When they are young and not on the throne or don't have any representative uh, functions, they go to the university and so the the sister of the Emperor, she worked on marine biologists Prince Hitachi, he he was a famous pathologist and worked also on fish cancer when he was active. And the Tenno himself, he worked also on fish. So they are all in the marine part. And he even described several new species of gobiate fish which live close to the shore uh, in Asia. So that's why they made this prize. and
0: And I guess the ceremony was super special.
1: Oh, the, w- the ceremony was special, and there was a very special event, and because in th- at the day before the, the ceremony, I was invited for tea with the emperor. just a personal audience. Wow. which was, uh, yeah, very remarkable and so for the whole ceremony I made me stay in in a I don't know how many stars hotel which is just opposite of the tennis palace just uh, across the street and I had a very big suit with flowers so it was very nice and then (coughs) it was I arrived the day before and uh, trying to catch up a little bit sleep but and then in the evening someone, uh, the bell rang and then there was a Japanese person in a black suit standing there, and he introduced himself as the main master of ceremonies of the palace. And I said, yeah, nice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, yeah, he's coming to check. And he wanted to see if I have a black suit, if I have a tie, if my shoes were clean. And uh, I asked him, yes, what do you... Ex- I was surprised. And said, yeah, but what do you expect? If I'm going to see yeah. the emperor, that's <laughs> my way. And he said, you cannot imagine <laughs> what we had on such occasions. There are people coming in sneakers and shorts to meet the ten, oh, that's not the thing. So he made this... Okay, and then next day, there was the, the tea, and he also explained me what I should do and what I should not do. So, in fact, as a normal person, you are not allowed to speak to the emperor personally. So there is always someone in the room, so if you have a question, you address this question to this person, and then the person communicates, and it goes the other way around. And of course that you should not uh, show your back to the emperor, so if you go out, you go backwards, all these things. But I had a very nice discussion with him because he is a he is a, a biologist, and uh, he was interested in fish.
0: Is that the most famous person you've met? Would you say?
1: For me, uh, yes. I I have also met several. I met several Nobel laureates, but I also met met James Brown. What? <laughs> James <laughs> Brown. Yeah, this was on, on occasion of of a concert, and I I won this ticket where you could go, after the ticket after after the concert out to the stage to his uh, thing and have a have a beer and a, a chat with
0: <laughs> him. Well, Dr. Shuttle, I want to thank you so much for participating on my first show. Thank you show. for having me here. Of course, do you have a good time?
1: I having a wonderful time good. here in San Marcos, in Texas, and I'm already looking forward to coming back in fall.
0: Thank you so much.